0: This afternoon, I sit down with Samara Powers. Samara is a mom, a poet, a non-theist, non-binary, queer-positive, trans-positive, relationship-anarchist, with a degree in English and professional background in marketing and graphic design. She is currently a full time seminary student at Meadville-Lombard Theological School and has been an active member of the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Gainesville. As a worship associate, a member of the last ministerial search committee, and previously team lead for the relationship advocacy team. She is also a certified OWL facilitator for the curriculum for older adults. She currently co-houses with two other moms in Gainesville, Florida. Revolutionary Prophecy is a podcast of Unitarian Universalist faith, centered on faith for action, pride, liberty, justice, liberation, and creation. Revolutionary prophecy is grounded in radical love, care, and sanctuary movements, all while simultaneously disrupting patriarchy and all systems of oppression plaguing our world. As the holders of revolutionary prophecies, we must do everything in love. As we do justice, love mercy, and tread humbly. Hey, Samar, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: Hi, Roddy. I'm doing great. It's good to be here with you.
0: Wonderful. So why don't we just jump right in. Tell me about this amazing CPE program that you were a part of. What was your experience like?
1: Oh yeah, all the
0: goodness. Uh, well, they're
1: right at seminary and they tell us CPE changes you, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, I feel really grateful to have done my CPE unit through Sankopa CPE Center, which is uh, run by the Reverend Dr. Danielle Buhuro. And my CPE supervisor was Reverend Karen Hutt. Now, I don't, I'm not sure if anybody knows, but for those who may not be aware, CPE stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. And for the program that you and I are in, our ordination process for the Unitarian Universalist Association requires one unit, right? Right. 400 hours, 300 of clinical practice, 100 of supervision. That's the nuts and bolts of it. Now, what they don't, you know, they can't prepare you for as much as they tell you, right? Is how transformative it is, right? Very intense. You and I have both
0: done a unit now,
1: (laughs) and it's very intense, right?
0: Um, It is. I did mine at a level one trauma center, mostly in the psychiatric children's ward.
1: Oh, funny. And you did yours as an intensive, right? Which is yours. So you were there. I did. All the time.
0: All 400 hours in three months, and then moved and started an internship. Don't recommend
1: 0 out of 10. You got recommended. Yeah. I, Zero out of 10. I remember when you were going through that and I was just like, wow, that is, that is a really intense, intense choice, but you were up to, you were up to it, right? You were up to the task. I was. Um, yeah. I didn't, for a variety of reasons. Um, I actually chose to do an extended unit, which means my program was like four and a half months and and so that meant that I had a little bit more time to integrate, a little bit more time just for my my process and my body and my mind needs a little bit of extra time, right, to kind of get through that. Um, but I, I ended up doing mine at a place called, here in my hometown of Gainesville called Grace Marketplace, which is um, a rapid rehousing and service center for those experiencing homelessness in Lachua County. And so they have on-site dorms and and medical services and other kinds of things in order to help people kind of get back into housing. And they never had anything like me there before, right? Um, So I was there three days a week for five hours at a time doing spiritual care, right? And the thing that's really cool about the unit that I did is uh, Karen Hutt is really spearheading this experiment that she's calling public chaplaincy. Which mm. brings spiritual care into arenas where, um, you know, outside of the church, outside of the hospital, outside of the kind of the typical places that you might find um, someone who is offering pastoral care, and really kind of taking it to the streets in a way. Um, and I think that makes it friendlier for you know, there's a lot of religious trauma in the world. There's a lot yes. of people who have experienced religious trauma, and unfortunately. You know, in this society, anyway, we have really not, in any way that I understand, normalized talking about care of the spirit and care of the mm. soul outside of religious contexts, right? And that's yeah. a significant—that's a significant gap because lots of people aren't going to church. Lots of people don't want to go to church. For a, oh, sorry, I think that was me. No way. Lots of people don't. <laughs> Lots of people don't wanna go to church for really good reasons, right? So in order to kind of bring that spiritual nurture to where the people are, and those, especially those in need and those in crisis, uh, this, she is really um, exploring this idea of public chaplaincy. And so everyone in my cohort had what you could call a non-traditional site for where they were going to do Uh, their care somebody was at a coffee house I was at a homeless shelter right and uh, and it was just fascinating it was really rewarding especially because I am interested in entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial ministry and especially like things like chaplaincy and spiritual care where Mm -hmm. the people are not prophetic sort of um, the prophetic vision for what we can do with our with our ministry right right so for
0: those that could you just say a word in a type of ministry that you and I know what that means? But for those who might be looking at ministry as within those traditional models, chaplaincy or parish ministry inside the church, what is entrepreneurial ministry?
1: I'm so glad you asked, Ronnie. <laughs> I... I have actually just learned that phrase since starting uh, at Meadville, since starting seminary. And um, my understanding of it may actually be a little different. Okay. Depending, And it could be different from person to person, depending on who you talk to. The way I think about entrepreneurial ministry is that it is an avenue similar to public chaplaincy, right, where you're taking this notion of ministry and you're bringing it out to new venues or exploring new avenues of expression. So for example, entrepreneurial ministry for someone could look like, um, oh, well, there's a guy who's actually going around. He's got a really good program. And I I wish I could remember. I'll have to see if I can link it so that you can share it with your listeners who is taking guns from various authorized sources and melting them down into garden Mm -hmm. tools. And Mm. to me, that is a perfect example of entrepreneurial ministry, right? There was nobody who was doing that, at least in a sort of organized fashion um, intended to address the public, right? But this was something that somebody had a certain skill set And he felt called to do this work. And he found a way to kind of explore this ministry and bring it to people in a way that is meaningful and and substantive and sustainable, right? So for me, that entrepreneurial piece really uh, leaves room for the innovation. And I have um, a late in life diagnosis of ADHD, but it sort of explains to myself why I'm such an idea maker and a question maker. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, for me, entrepreneurial ministry leaves me the room to kind of um, explore and be creative about the ways that I want to uh, to do ministry in the world. I think one of those is a literary ministry and that may look like everything from bringing books to people like I did at the, at my CPE site um, to to writing, you know, I have an article or sorry, a chapter that will be coming out in uh, an anthology that is gonna be put out by Skinner House Books in the next
2: mm-hmm.
1: sometime, I'm not sure, probably a year or so. Um, but to be able to explore and embrace my creative, you know, interface with the world is important to me. So I always say that I'm an entrepreneurial minister in training.
0: I love it. It's kind of the same way I will say that I'm a public theologian in training or an aspiring public theologian.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: There was a space years ago where the Harvard Ivy League sermon was very important. The words mattered. And now I just kind of want to be out doing the damn thing. And (laughs) in the pulpit, in the space. But then pieces like entrepreneurial ministry, public chaplaincy, like it doesn't just happen in the confines of a building anymore, does it?
1: Right. And I think that's so important because, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed certainly among our cohort, there are not many people who are just called to parish ministry anymore. There certainly are those people and they're doing valuable work. Um, But a lot of people are called to community ministry or entrepreneurial ministry or chaplaincy or other ways in which I I think are, are kind of indicative of a a necessary change that we as emerging religious professionals will have to embrace. And in some ways, I think we are leading, we're leading that change, right? right? Lots of people, like I said, lots of people aren't going to the traditional church anymore because they're just not finding it meaningful for what they need.
0: Right. But then we recognize there are people that do find it meaningful. So it's important that there are people who are still called in some sense, like I am into the parish setting, but knowing that that's not all that there is. So
1: great, right. right, right, right. Exactly. And, and especially because I think you and there are others of our colleagues that could, that are coming to mind as well, can provide a really important bridge to, to be in that congregational setting and help kind of shepherd some of the change because, uh, you know, is one of my favorite sayings, church moves slowly,
2: <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm, wherever you've truth. got
1: masses of people, right? Wherever you've got masses of people gathering, you've got a lot of, of energy and plurality and particularity to kind of harness and organize. And to be able to bridge that context with whatever is emerging is such an mm-hmm. important an important role to fill, it has a lot of value. You're right.
0: Yeah. So kind of changing topics a little, but not fully. You and I are both inseminated together at Meadville Mm Lombard. And we are in the same cohort. Cycles have gotten a little bit off. We're still in the same cohort. Don't care who you ask. Right. We've come, we came into one of our first classes, and I feel like both of us had an experience where everything got liquefied, turned inside out, morphed, changed. And why I say not entirely changing subject is because CPE does that, yeah. and seminary does that, and internships do that. So I guess what the question becomes is, what has that process been like for you of going into a space, thinking that you know what you're getting into, that you have this grand understanding of this thing called ministry or seminary or life even, to be told week after week, well, you know that thing you thought you knew or that thing you learned last week? throw it out the window. Let's begin. again. What's that like for you?
1: Oh, oh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. I, I I, jokingly say that seminary is radicalizing me. I mean, I say it jokingly, even though it's 100% true. Um, because even yes, for some, as much research as you can do before you go into something like this, there's nothing Nothing that could have prepared me for, you know, what we went through, and especially during our initial year, right, that grounding mm-hmm. signature course, and the um, interculture, intercultural development inventory, and all of these things that are designed to hone your self-reflexivity, your self-reflection, your understanding about who you are and where you are in the world in relation to others, has been so much like having layers of wool pulled off my eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And as much, like I said, as much research as could be done, there were so many things that changed without me even having been aware. (laughs) First, right? right? Like a lot of this was kind of a leap of faith, right? Coming to seminary for me, there was uh, even though I identify as a non-theist, there is something that I experienced as a call or a blossoming that was uh, was a process that happened outside of my intellectual decision making, right? There was a blossoming in my heart about it. And so to a certain extent, there was a leap of faith into this. and um, It has proven again and again and again with every level and layer of deconstruction and reevaluation has only affirmed my path and my choice. And Mm -hmm. that is, it's so rewarding. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. I doubt that I will again, (laughs) right? but yeah, so if you have to like for me, what it's been like that liquefaction process, and then there's also the rebuilding, right? Like there's the mm-hmm. there's the tearing down of the old ideas, but there's giving all of these resources, and you know, we as colleagues are encouraged to give each other, you know, nurture and resources to um, to supplement our discernment and formation. And it just feels like this golden age of learning, and uh, I'm trying to cherish it. I'm trying to cherish every moment because once we get out there in the real world, even though like you and your internship and me having just finished CPE, there is already that real world element. Right. It's like getting the MDiv, seeing the MFC, and getting the you know preliminary fellowship getting the ordination. All of those are important milestones marking like being pushed out of the nest. <laughs> right? right. So I'm trying to enjoy this nest time while I can. It's really glorious and difficult.
0: That's a really beautiful way to put it. Glorious and difficult.
2: It mm-hmm. is. It's been so it hard. Right?
0: So What's been one of your favorite classes or things that have happened either within or outside of the class that have been one of those kind of glorious, difficult moments that you said earlier, things that like you didn't even know that were going to emerge or come up? So what's Mm -hmm. like when something that's one of those moments?
1: Oh God, okay. Let me think about that. Um, So one of the things that has surprised me is the way that I am coming to understand myself. Mm. Um, I never had an ADHD diagnosis before coming to seminary. right? And I I felt galvanized and validated in finally seeking that out. but also now, uh, neurodivergence in other frameworks, possibly autism spectrum, like there are mm-hmm. these these identities that I'm sort of exploring and and wondering do they do they apply to me? And I think so. That that one has been the most surprising, and that's a, absolutely a result of all the deconstruction and evaluation processes that we've gone through. Right. Right. Um, the other thing that I kind of was told about, but which experiencing it was a whole other level of understanding. Was the ways that I would have to change how I move through the world,
2: uh-huh. um,
1: and and certainly with relationship to my home congregation, which is a lovely congregation that welcomed me and um, uh-huh. with wide open arms, you know, seven or eight years ago, and having previously not ever been interested in or attended a church before. Um, But now that I'm going through this process, I'm like, I I, there is a necessary process that we're all of us are going through where we have to change as we move from congregant to clergy. Um, You know, part of managing our those healthy boundaries is really drawing the line, right? You've you've experienced that. I'm in the middle of experiencing that. Um, But also like, seeing the system and the dynamics and understanding how people operate and and wanting to help and wanting to be engaged, but not but not being able to do so in a nourishing way, right? Because of my own formation, because of the healthy boundaries that are needed to keep. So so the changing relationship with my home congregation, I was warned to expect, but experiencing it has been, has been something vastly different. I also right. was not expecting to be radicalized
0: quite so much. <laughs> yeah, I think I wasn't expecting to have to talk about myself so much. Mm, right. But it's like I love it because it does like radicalize us. It does like bring all of those things. Like, does autism spectrum fit in? what is it about the fascination with a abled body what does an abled body even mean what does it mean for me personally it's like i came into seminary knowing that i was transracially adopted but i grew up in whiteness
2: mm.
0: so in the seminary first semester actually doing ancestry dna and be like, oh, you're 25% black, you can actually claim this, and learn that lineage, and that history, yeah, and it's like, how does that inform everything else, and it's like, oh, well, guess you lived 20 plus years doing things this way, but let's do something else now,
1: right, that part of that, I remember that you went through that really incredible self-discovery really early on you yeah. it was like first semester wasn't it first semester
0: first semester was kind of the beginning and January was like the realization of everything unfolding
1: gotcha yeah that is so it's so much like yeah that's that's amazing and then I think I don't know what it's been like for you but also to kind of continue in that process has also revealed all of the the ways in which that formation blesses us, right? It, right? it blesses us and it blesses our colleagues and it blesses our work. And it's something of a crucible. It's like, we gotta go through this process to burn away all the stuff that is, that is not ministry, right? That is not mm-hmm. our role as ministers. and. And so yeah. it seems like something of an understatement to call it, you know, going into a helping profession because it is such a it's such a transformation.
0: It is. And it sometimes becomes surprising how, in the transformation transformation, the things that we try to let go of or that we've told ourselves we let go of reemerge. <laughs> so I know I came into Unitarian Universalism hope by Christianity. Mm-hmm. Telling myself, yeah, I don't have to be a Christian to be UU. And that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then in seminary, it's like, Party, you're still a Christian and you're UU. You, you. So it's like seminary made that re-emerge and forced me to break through instead of denying it and kind of slamming the door on Christianity. Which is what I was yeah. trying to do. Seminaries, like you're going to examine this, you're going to work through it, and you're going to figure out that you're still a Christian. You're going to have to deal with it.
1: <sighs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful work, and also I think particularly important for Unitarian Universalists because uh, it seems that, um, well, Unitarian Universalism, like any faith tradition, has some work to do. Right? Mm-hmm. We do. We just have some work to do, and one of the things that I have always appreciated about it is that at various levels from personal all the way up to associational, right, the, the broadest organizational that's governing us uh, is seems to be demonstrating, right, we're modeling what that change and what that reevaluation can look like and, and doing that that hard work um -hmm. and one of the one of the threads that i've noticed the threads of work that needs to be done is that so so many of us are coming to unitarian universalism um out of kind of in flight right in flight from their faith tradition of their origin or of their Mm -hmm. of their younger years uh and then bringing some religious trauma with them and so i think there really is a thread not not solid certainly not all the way through but Uh, many instances of of unaddressed anti-Christian sentiment and I feel like Mm. you're kind of modeling beautifully what that can look like and how that can be that can be redeemed Mm.
2: so
0: knowing that you just named many Unitarian Universalists come to the faith with religious trauma with spiritual trauma with interpersonal trauma And earlier, we mentioned that those just trauma all around public chaplaincy, shows that any form of chaplaincy and ministry show that. So, why? And this could be a loaded question. I realize that. And it might be something you and I need to jump into another episode down the road and fully address. Okay. But why are Unitarian Universalists so trauma adverse? If our ministries and our congregations only exist in response to trauma that has occurred. Because Unitarian Universalism is a chosen faith. We choose to come into it and we only choose to come into it after something has happened in our spiritual life, in our personal life, in our interpersonal lives. And more often than not, it's a trauma response that we are needing to process, deal with, reconcile, and find community around. So why don't we talk about it?
1: Oh, those are very good questions. I, I mean, I can offer you my perspective, Beautiful. which is, that is... You know what we're learning about white supremacy culture, for one mm-hmm. thing, and Unitarian Universalism being predominantly a white middle or even upper middle class denomination or association, rather because we're not we're not doctrinal. But um, and and I think part of that part of that is in the larger scope of white supremacy culture in this nation.
0: We don't Mm
1: -hmm. normalize those soft skills that we are working on so hard in seminary, right? And which are so vitally important to building relationship, building trust with yourself and with others and building relationship with self and other to, to name and acknowledge the hurt and what the hurt has done to us and how we may unknowingly then project that hurt onto others by our unwitting actions, right? When we Mm -hmm. don't analyze the hurt uh, and and get help in addressing it, right? Whatever that looks like, then then it perpetuates, it self-perpetuates the way white supremacy culture self-perpetuates through the training and through the unknowing indoctrination, right? Because we are taught this is the way things are Right, mm. And I think, I mean, not to name this as a barrier, but I think that um, the whiteness, the predominant whiteness, the predominant class status, and also possibly age, right, could have mm. something to do with it. Certainly not a defining characteristic because I know a lot of, of older white, you know, older and even older white, you use who are really in there at doing the work, right? They're in there. So I, I hate to name generalities because you and I both know the danger of that. Right. Um, but yeah, so in terms of not normalizing the conversation around healing, and I think another big piece of it with Unitarian Universalism in particular is we have not, by and large, as, an, an, as a collective faith tradition, normalized lament.
2: Mm. Right? Right.
1: So holding a space for that, holding that as critical to our faith process and even our growth process individually and collectively, I think that we're not that great
2: at it, generally speaking. Mm. Yeah.
0: Definitely room for so much more conversation around that piece.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: I know you mentioned you have that forthcoming book chapter. Mm-hmm. You had an amazing CPE experience. Sounds like you're having a wonderful seminary experience. So is there anything that's kind of bubbling up for you that hasn't come to the surface in this conversation that you want to get out there?
1: Mm, thank you for the reminder because I need those. <laughs> um, yes. So one of the things that I am so excited um, by the CPE unit that I just had uh, is it was the first of its kind that was uh, exclusively Unitarian Universalist. So mm. all of the members of my cohort were, were fellow UUs, which um, was special to me in a particular way because we you know we had to do our final evaluations and one of the things that I noted in my per, in my self evaluation was that having a dedicated UU space for this very tender and demanding learning process. I think really um, gave us some shortcuts into building intimacy and trust as a cohort
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: that I think let us learn, develop together in ways that didn't require us to be aware of uh, religious particularity. And navigating all that is really good to know how to do. And at the same time, I felt that having a UU cohort was uh, really valuable Uh, for, for my learning experience. And the other thing that was special about this unit with chaplaincy piece, right? It was one of the first, if not the first, that is really focused on public chaplaincy as a method of, um, of doing your clinical pastoral education. And um, Karen Hutt, Reverend Karen Hutt is really spearheading this experiment. And there are actually ways for current Unitarian Universalist Seminarians to kind of engage with this. Um, Right now there is a Facebook page that has just been started and is developing that's called UU Public Chaplaincy. And we're currently actually running uh, an application period open to UU seminarians at any stage of their education from any seminary uh, to be a part of this pilot experiment that that she's supervising with chaplaincy. So I encourage people to go find that Facebook page and I can provide a link if you you know, can offer that to mm-hmm. your listeners um, to go and engage with that because I feel like there is some really important and prophetic work that public chaplaincy can do to kind of nurture um, Unitarian Universalism in a, in a wonderfully pastoral and prophetic way. So people who are interested in maybe helping their congregation to discover itself as embedded within their community, right? So doing work with a congregation or whether it's an independent project that you wanna run with your home congregation, like there's lots of different ways that this this program could be um, explored with interested seminarians. So I definitely wanna lift that up because it's deeply exciting to me. And Reverend Karen is just uh, a fantastic, fantastic leader in the movement and, uh, um, she's been an, a cpe educator for something like 16 years or, or something like that mm. wonderful wonderful presence and wonderful wonderful leadership from her
0: beautiful anything else come up for you Sma?
1: um i don't know is there something that i said that i was going to talk about that i forgot about no I can't, I don't think so. The book chapter is currently in editorial revision. I'm very excited about it's um prophetic polyamory is the working title. Mm-hmm. And it'll be coming out in the queer theology anthology that um, Skinner House books will be putting out with editors uh Lane May Reed and oh I'm gonna Lane May Campbell and Michael Crumpler, I believe, are the editors. So
2: yeah, I got your name is
1: pronounced. But uh, this is this is my brain. This is how I do ministry. This is how I show up. Trying to own it. <laughs> Seminaries helping. We love them. it. <laughs> thank you. Love it. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. And thank I you. hope we can maybe continue it. Because it sounds like there's a lot to dive into that didn't get named.
1: <laughs> I would love to, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you.
2: Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Revolutionary Prophecy. Remember, beloveds, together we are the holders of Revolutionary Prophecy. Our stories really do matter. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share Revolutionary Prophecies with your friends.